is forgiven in Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta. We love the idea of family worship. Where can I go from your spirit? It's in our DNA. Well said. Welcome to the Very Good Podcast from Atlanta Westside. My name is Corey Fleeman. I am the Director of Communications for Atlanta Westside Presbyterian Church. If you're listening, you're already aware that we've launched a podcast and this is our maiden voyage. Our goal is to give you, dear listener, relevant content to help you think, ponder, converse, uh, you name it. Ultimately, however, we hope that our podcast glorifies God and brings you closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our episodes feature different hosts and different guests, so I am here to serve as a guide for each episode, a bit of a podcast master of ceremonies. In this episode, Presbytery What? Atlanta Westside Senior Pastor Walter Henniger sits down with Jim Wirt, ruling elder at In-Town Community Church in Atlanta, and, if this is a thing, an expert on Presbyterianism, to discuss what it means to be part of a Presbyterian or PCA church. Walter Jim also walk us through how the Presbyterian Church fits within the global church framework. We get a bit heady in this episode, but that's true to form for Presbyterians, am I right? Uh, enjoy the episode. Well, my name is Walter Henniger, and I am the senior pastor of Atlanta West Side Presbyterian Church. I uh, grew up in a Presbyterian church in Chattanooga, Tennessee that, that became part of the PCA somewhere in the mid-80s. And I've really spent the majority of my life in PCA churches. I got out of seminary in 2002 and was part of a PCA church here in Atlanta and then planted Atlanta West Side in 2007. In the time that I've been in the PCA, I've been involved in various committees of our presbytery. We'll explain what that means in a bit. Reform University Fellowship Committee, the Credentials Committee, it's been an important piece of my life. So I'm here today with my friend and fellow presbyter, Jim Wirt. And Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Yeah, I'm Jim Wirt. I, I'm, a, I'm a ruling elder, which I guess we're going to talk about at some point, too. It's different from a teaching elder, which Walter is, and have been one of those since 1992. Hmm at uh, in-town community church also here in atlanta atlanta west side is a granddaughter church of our church and a great granddaughter of where i started here in atlanta but i I'll, like like you walter i also grew up even earlier in the in the pca started came to faith 50 years ago like wow. about now wow in a presbyterian church small southern town in hendersonville north carolina mm. And at the time, we went through all of the debates and hand-wringing and ultimately separation from the mainline Southern Presbyterian Church at that time. Mm. My church left in 78, I think, or 79, mm. and we went with it. And, uh, and I, so I grew up Presbyterian mm. and uh, moved to Atlanta and tried to find a Presbyterian church, a PCA church. And, and tell us just a little bit about your involvement in the PCA. Yeah, have been the core involvement is always being a ruling elder or um, a shepherd mm -hmm. um, supporting the ministerial staff in a local church. So I've been that at in town since 92. But then I, too, have gotten very uh, deeply involved in lots of presbytery things. Another one of those organizational elements. Uh, so on lots of committees, particularly um, our church planting committee, as well as our credentials committee. 
the purpose of this conversation is to help people understand what it means to be part of a Presbyterian church and a PCA church in particular. And we want to provide some information as well as some sort of personal anecdotal context for what it's like. So one of the first places we wanted to start is to talk about what Presbyterian and PCA churches have in common with the global church in general. We we recognize that we are just one corner of the capital C church, and uh, especially in Protestant churches, we we really share a lot in common. A few of those things that, that pop out to me offhand, we share a high view of the authority of Scripture. Uh, like all Protestant churches, we believe in a gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Mm-hmm. We believe in the, the importance of, of personal conversion. That's a, a distinctive of the evangelical movement. Uh, we believe in evangelism and missions. In general, Presbyterians would be more inclined to be engaged constructively with culture, not just withdrawing from it. For me, the core is great commandment, great commission mm-hmm. stuff. So we, like many believers around the world, are deeply committed to loving God mm-hmm. and loving our neighbor. Um, so that that kind of greatest commandment idea. Mm-hmm. And then it's particularly important for me that our, our denomination are deeply committed to taking the gospel to the world, particularly to those who don't hear it. So this great commission to the ends of the earth kind of an idea. I, I find great overlap and resonance with many, many other believers from all flavors as I work around the world. It's an element of our particular strand of Presbyterianism that we are we're very self-consciously embracing of that reality and, and not sort of pretending like we're the only ones that got it all right. That's right. People are still curious. Why denominations? Why even have this name in your church at all? Probably 50 years ago, a lot of people in the United States would feel a sense of loyalty or identification with the denomination that is much less common today. Many people don't even think membership is important anymore. And so it'd be good to talk for a little bit about sort of the lay of the land denominationally. And I I would sort of divide up denominations between or differences between denominations in four broad categories, theology, government, practice, and history. So let's just go through those and, and bat them around a little bit. So denominations differ in terms of their theological commitments. They can overlap with the same theological commitments across different denominations, or they might have some that are very different. So yeah. maybe I'll just ask you, Jim, what in the Presbyterian tradition, what's distinctive about our theological? Well, I mean, you can go all the way back to the Reformation if you want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the first creation of denominations mm-hmm. is... Uh, Luther and Calvin and others get combative with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a theological argument. It's, it's, it's about the nature of salvation, the nature of authority. Mm-hmm. It, it expresses itself in a lot of ways theologically for us. So one of the biggest areas is probably in the area of sacraments. Mm-hmm. And so um, we have strong resonance and a lot of overlap with uh, brothers and sisters in non-denominational churches Mm -hmm. or in Baptist churches that would be strongly aligned with a particular understanding of how that particular sacrament works. Mm -hmm. Whereas we would align with other denominations that that would uh, see and understand the nature of baptism in in different ways Mm -hmm. um, as expression of covenant as opposed to confession, for example. That would be 
you know, one of the markers of why um, certain denominations would feel we need to you know, associate with those who believe in a certain way about certain things. Right. And then we can still be in under the, the umbrella of faith, mm-hmm. but have differences in those kinds of points of view. It might be worth noting that one of the reasons why denominations exist, I think, is, is because you, in practice of doing local church ministry, you have to decide, well, what are we going to tell people as leaders? Right. Do we do we baptize their infants or do we not? Uh, do we believe that God is sovereign over our salvation or is it our free will that's determinative? And and so part of the idea is just having some having a consistent voice and leadership in terms of how we interpret the Bible. Right. Maybe to help people understand. So if the, in the theological differences, we we could have churches in the Baptist tradition, uh, churches in the uh, Anglican tradition, uh, Bible church tradition that all might be reformed theologically in terms right. of how they understand salvation. So there's a lot of overlap cross-denominationally in some of these core theological commitments. Right, right. And in fact, you know, even at, at our church at InTown, one of the things we tell new members is that you don't have to be a Presbyterian to be a Presbyterian. Right. You know, so when we accept a member in our church, and I think at most PCA churches, you know, we're just looking for a credible core profession of faith that, you know, I need Jesus to take on my sinful nature and replace it with his own righteousness. And Mm. therefore I am adopted into God's family. And, you know, so it's kind of core shared biblical understanding of how salvation works and, and how I can be part of God's family in his kingdom. It's a very low bar in some ways to be embraced as part of the local church. And in fact, I think certainly at Atlanta West Side and probably in town as well, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is to let people know what else is going on here behind the scenes that they may not be aware of beyond that basic profession of faith that we all share. Right. Well, so another category that that distinguishes denominations that will help us flesh out what it means to be Presbyterian is is government. In other words, how the church is led and organized, who makes decisions, what's the structure. Right. Generally speaking, the the two poles of church government could be described as congregational on one end of the spectrum, where every congregation is independent, makes its own decisions, no matter what other churches say or do. And then on the other end of the spectrum would be Episcopal, sort of a hierarchical church government where you have not only local church leaders, but bishops and cardinals and all the way up to the Roman Catholic Church that would have a pontiff. And, and Presbyterianism is, I'll just say, somewhere in the middle. And Jim, maybe you can flesh out yeah. where it is. Yeah. Well, first of all, well, the name Presbyterian is a reference to government. Right. You know, the, it, it, so the idea of having presbyters mm-hmm. or elders is so central that, you know, we take our name from that. Right. Um, Presbyteros is the Greek word that is go. translated elder in the English Bible. Right. Yeah. So for some strange reason... And we think because it's biblical, but it's odd that uh, we have chosen a government structure that's essentially government by committee. Mm. Now, for for any of you listeners out there who are (laughs) in the work world and love meetings, (laughs) there there are probably relatively few of you. 
the idea of having a governance that's based on a pure committee based structure mm. is, is kind of odd. I don't think it would be the first sort of form that we would go to that congregationalist feels deeply democratic, right? The hierarchical feels deeply efficient, at least, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, we're just looking for we're looking for Moses to come down from the mountain with the tablets to tell us what we're supposed to do. We lead based on our congregations identifying those who are gifted to be leaders and pastors and teachers, prayers amongst us. Those and and we create these things called sessions or groups of elders at the local church level, and then. Because we don't want to stop there, we take those sessions or churches and create groups of churches and call them presbyteries and take groups of presbyteries and call it a denomination, which is what we have at our, at our general mm -hmm. assembly. But it's all, you know, you know, committee. And, and there's a deep philosophical commitment behind that, even theological. I'll take a quick stab at it and yeah, see if you can yeah. make it even clearer. But, but it's, it's the assumption that God doesn't just speak through one person. Correct. And that if he has formed his church to be a body with many different types of body parts that are all indispensable and all necessary, that the leadership of the church is right. also going to require a plurality <clears throat> of leaders in order to discern how God wants us to operate. Right. And so we, we would go to scripture and mm -hmm. see Jesus raising up, you know, I guess his first session mm -hmm. in, in his apostles. Mm -hmm. Uh, we see efforts to keep a whole number of that, uh, you know, the post-Judas era. We believe there is some, there, there is great biblical warrant for this kind of an approach. Mm. As a student of governance and of organizations, there is no perfect organization. You know, mm. so so any one of these models that you you started us out with, Walter, is has got its strengths and weaknesses right. associated with it, and certainly. You know, this governance by committee or, or this Presbyterian orientation has its challenges. The, the need to create unity, mm. the importance of developing um, trust mm. up amongst the leaders and between those that are leading and, and those that are being led is, is just vital. And just to clarify a few details of this Presbyterian yeah. structure and arrangement. So we've mentioned elders. And so you're a ruling elder and I'm a teaching elder. These are Presbyterian specific terms that come from a single verse in First Timothy yeah. 5, where Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. And right. so right. the uh, the idea is that that pastors... Uh, like me, who are seminary trained and uh, committed to sort of full time, ideally the work of the word and sacraments, actually have the same status as right. laymen, ruling elders such as yourself. We have equal vote on the local church level, on the presbytery level, on the general assembly level. Nobody is of a higher rank than another. Right. right. And some, some churches put more of an emphasis on uh, the status of the teaching elders or pastors. Some are, are flatter. You've seen both, I'm sure. Yeah. In part, that's just the, um, the reality of having a vocational elder mm -hmm. versus a non-vocational. I won't say avocational because mm -hmm. it really is a high, holy 
an important calling mm. for those of us who are in an elder role, but who, you know, don't do it, you know, a full work week and mm -hmm. get paid to do it. Right. Um, and yet there is very much of an equal yoking kind of a, of an important orientation of value mm -hmm. as, as we approach that role. Two other quick things to note about the, the structure or government of the way Presbyterianism is, is put together. So if, if the primary leadership office is the office of elder, we also believe in the office of deacon. Right. First uh, Timothy three puts the requirements for the office of deacon right after the requirements for the office of elder or overseer. And how would you distinguish what the deacons do that is as distinct from what the elders? Do? Yeah. So I, I go primarily to the section in Acts that talks where it seems like the office is created. And Acts chapter six. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you're a teaching elder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, Acts six, where you see this tension rising between the administration of practical gifts and support for especially it's interesting in these days between it, it's it's an ethnic issue mm -hmm. between Jewish widows and Gentile widows and mm -hmm. and the apostles are feeling like they're getting sucked into lots of administrative and um, practical details of how do we support our people to the degree that they're feeling pulled out of things like deep understanding and, and study of the word, deep prayer, mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of leadership things. And hence, you get this, this separation of duties. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think of the office of deacon as primarily one of service. Right. In, in some churches, it feels like it's devolved into ushers and money counters. Right. And, and that's not it at all, obviously. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it has very much to do. So in town, our deacons are, are deeply involved in, in encouraging our congregation towards service mm -hmm. and towards generosity even while they're also making sure that the communion elements are in place when they're supposed to be. One of my favorite phrases from our book of church order that describes the office of deacon, it says that one of their jobs is to stir up the grace of liberality in the yeah. congregation. In yeah. other words, to be, to be people that are leading the way and encouraging others to generosity, not only in giving of their resources, but their time and their gifts. Right. Right. And again, um, just as the elders are should be seeking to create shepherds and shepherd makers mm -hmm. throughout the entire congregation, mm -hmm. um, that that idea of creating liberality mm -hmm. and creating an ethic of service, mm -hmm. creating life on life ministry mm -hmm. throughout the congregation, young and old, men and women, mm -hmm. um, I think is an important charge for right. for our deacons. Absolutely. It's such an important understanding of government that people don't think, well, we, okay, we have elders and deacons. They're the people who lead the church and everybody else is just um, showing up. Yeah, and a tender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in fact, the, the officers of the church are small minority helping to equip and encourage the rest of the body to do the work of the That's church. Right. That's right. You know, in some ways I think it's unfortunate that we even talk about members yeah. At least in today's definition of members, you yeah. know, is back to the old American Express tagline, membership has its privileges. Yeah. And so if that's the way that, that we ha we are thinking about members or members are thinking about of themselves, you know, what am I getting out of this? Yeah. Um, then that's not church. 
at all. Right. You know, it is a it is a mobilized, co-laboring, mm. missional, loving internally and externally body. In, interconnected yeah. as yeah. well. I yeah. mean, I I, w- I like to use the the somewhat uh, obvious term body parts. Yeah. Because yeah. it it conveys that idea that we're we're incomplete without each other. Right. Maybe to uh, the last thing I mention in regard to the government of the church. Yeah. We. So we've, we've already made reference, you explained it well, the, the local church is governed by a board of elders, which we call the session. Right. Uh, then representatives from each local church get together regionally and meet, in, in our case, three times a year in a presbytery. Right. Metro right. Atlanta Presbytery is our group, and we, we meet for mutual accountability, for cooperative ministry. And then once a year, we gather together as a general assembly representatives from each presbytery as well. So both ruling and teaching elders, though, when you get to the general assembly level and you're talking about taking a few days off of your vocation, it's uh, it's overwhelmingly teaching elders who are devoted full time. Yeah, we actually saw an uptick this past year. We've been lingering at about the 20 percent ruling or non-vocational elders, mm-hmm. 80% um, teaching elders or vocational. That, that shifted to about a 75-25 this mm-hmm. last year. It was probably because there were lots of controversial things right. on the agenda. Yeah. The other thing I'd say about, it reemphasizes a point you made earlier, Walter, was that those that architecture of local church, churches assembled in the presbytery, presbyteries assembled into a general assembly, that also is non-hierarchical. Right. Churches don't report to presbyteries and presbyteries don't report to the, the best we can get is we will review your records. Yeah. <laughs> we'll review your minutes. Yeah. An exciting task. <laughs> um, but and so there is accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, there is monitoring to make sure that we're still staying within boundaries, mm-hmm. um, theological or, or um, ecclesiological and moral and moral. Exactly. But in, especially in the PCA, there what we, what we call it is a very grassroots orientation. Right. And so the authority and the mandate for the local church to to operate with full authority in its sphere, with its membership, with its body, mm. is um, is absolutely in place. And it, it preserves <laughs> that that local autonomy while while remaining. Connected. I yes. think that, that term connectionalism yeah. is a is often associated with what we're about. It it implies both the sense that we're accountable to one another, but also that we are joyfully cooperating with one another to do ministry together right. and right. and very important piece of, of the government. I maybe maybe just to move on to these other these other two categories that, that distinguish denominations. So uh, and by the way, worth noting that on a micro level, some even some Baptist churches can be Presbyterian in government in the yeah. sense that they are led by multiple elders. Right. But Sometimes they, Baptist churches call them deacons, right. but they really mean elders. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So we've we've covered theology and government. We've touched on differences in practice uh, when you mentioned the sacraments, how we understand right. the Lord's Supper, right. and especially right. how we understand <clears throat> baptism. That's a very distinctive thing about different denominations. Baptist churches obviously insist on a profession of faith before baptism. Uh, if you ever go to a non-denominational church, 
nine times out of 10, that's code for Baptist. Right. They right. will typically uh, also insist on baptism, on profession of faith. Whereas churches like ours, uh, Anglican, Episcopal, Methodist, uh, Lutheran churches will baptize the children of believers. And we've talked a little bit about the theology there, uh, but we won't get into that more uh, until another <laughs> podcast, perhaps. Right, right. Uh, a couple of other differences to, uh, to mention and... Um, Spiritual gifts is one that sometimes distinguishes like how, right. how churches handle uh, gifts described in the New Testament, like prophecy and speaking in tongues and gifts of healing. Right, right. Uh, Pentecostal churches would be known for have, being much more uh, treating those as kind of normative part of the life of the church. And uh, I don't know, Jim, without going into a lot of detail on that, how would you describe where the PCA is at on that? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the you know, the official phrase for it is cessationist. But even even there, I've had conversations with fellow Presbyterians that are of differing minds as far as where the line gets drawn. Right. And so, so usually that applies to mir miraculous gifts, speaking in tongues. Right healings, mm -hmm. and certainly the idea of prophetic pronunciations, which are of equal weight or authority as scripture. So we, we would go to all those and say, we believe that those have, have ceased, that those miraculous gifts were in place in the New Testament era, particularly given the era of needing to build up the early church. Candidly, I've worked enough with you know, folks that are in India or in Southeast Asia or in the Middle East and, you know, the appearance of the or the importance of conversion by dreams or the, the witnessing of healing. Mm. I've worked with folks in the Assemblies of God who, who still are fully embracing all of those kinds of gifts. Mm. And I think that they are brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in the Lord. In part, it gets to... Um, how we test the spirit right and um what is the point and purpose so even even you can go to how paul describes you know speaking in tongues and and the importance of that's happening in worship that there be an interpretation that there be an understanding and other than that right. you know maybe it's a private prayer language don't know mm -hmm. but in general we presbyterians tend to be pretty conservative well, dusty folks and yeah I just for my part, I'd say i i have seen that there's a, a fair amount of breadth within the pca some people would even call themselves Presbycostals <laughs> to some extent. But I'd say the one thing we probably have in common, uh, to use a, a term one of my seminary professors used, he used to say it was that the these sort of miraculous expressions of the Spirit were non-paradigmatic, which is okay. a seminary professor way to say, this is not the normal expression of right. the Christian life, even, even in the early church where right. you right. have clear references to this happening that the normal Christian life is is a lot more um, pedestrian in many ways right. than those those um, spectacular expressions. <clears throat> yeah, we so. tend to focus more on everyday graces. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and yeah. also to circle back to uh, we, we've we've made reference to this term sacraments in the Presbyterian understanding. As we read Scripture, we see two sacraments: right. baptism as the sacrament of entrance, as you said, and the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of kind of feeding right. our faith. There are also different understandings of the Lord's Supper across different denominations. Oh, yeah. Anything you would comment on the Supper? Just that the Supper, if you look at church history and, and how we administer it and who has access to it, 
it has been such a flashpoint of controversy. It's what got Jonathan Edwards booted from his pastorate in Boston mm. was uh, his his fencing of the table and who has access to taking on right. the Lord's Supper. You know, the debates in the early reform, in the, in the early Reformation between how Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or all those, you know, church history guys would understand, you know, what's going on right. here. And so there's, there's really important theological work that's happening underneath the surface, mm -hmm. but it, it works itself in those practices that you're describing, you know, right. how frequently do we take it? Is it okay? You know, we had a big debate, one general assembly about, is it okay to dip the bread in the wine? Right. You know, thing called intinction. Yep. Or is that, you know, just this violation of the separation of those elements that we see in its first administration with Jesus in the upper room? And so we get into those kinds of debates, the, you know, the modes of baptism, you know, is, is it okay to sprinkle or must it be, you know, some kind of full immersion somewhere? And what is that referring to mm -hmm. in, in scripture? You know, is it death and burial? And that's the only way to think about baptism. Right. Or are there, you know, great, you know, Moses sprinkling altars for cleansing or, right. or the washing kinds of imagery that you get in other places. So, and, and so we get into those kinds of debates mm -hmm. and you'll see those, um, those debates getting worked out in the practicalities right. of how it, those sacraments get administered. And it reminds me, there's a, there's an expression that's used in the PCA's college ministry, Reformed University yeah, Fellowship. Yeah. They talk about uh, fixed theology and flexible methodology. And I think yeah. when it comes to practice, uh, all, all PCA churches uh, do baptize the infants of parents who agree to it. You know, yeah, some some yeah. don't. But some of these ways that worship has worked out, the frequency of the sacraments yeah, and yeah. Uh, whether you can dip bread or not, or whether you have those little chalk wafers or whether you have <laughs> yeah. wine or grape juice. There's, That's right. Whether you have whether you have drums and a guitar or an organ, oh, yeah, there's actually a, yeah. a lot of variety within Presbyterianism in general and the PCA in particular in terms of how we actually do yes. worship. Yes, that's right. Hi there. This is Corey Fleeman again, your podcast master of ceremonies. Just wanted to interrupt our episode with an obligatory commercial break. If you are interested at all at Atlanta Westside Presbyterian Church, feel free to either download our app available on most app stores or head to atlantawestside.org, atlantawestside.org, to learn more about our church. That's it. We definitely need to come back to that one. And maybe to, to close out this sort of understanding Presbyterianism in the denominational landscape, this, this fourth category. So if we've covered theology and government and practice, yeah. the fourth category would be history, that there's there are historical circumstances that often bring about the formation of denominations and sort of the... The classic uh, reference is the Church of England formed when the Pope refused to grant Henry VIII's annulment yeah, of right, his divorce, right, and now right. you've got the Church of England. But, you know, even the, the Westminster Assembly, right, which in right. the, the mid-1600s was formed at a time when England was going through a civil war. Right. And so England was, for a handful of years, a sort of Presbyterian church because of that yeah. war and who was in charge for a handful of years, uh, or even in American history, when the Civil War broke out, you right. see a lot of churches that divided North and South. So, you know, like the Southern Baptist Church, for example, it was originally formed in one of those divisions between Northern and Southern churches. Uh, the PCA 
was formed in 73 out of the PCUS, which was the Southern Presbyterian yeah, Church, right. formed out of that historical division. So it's it's helpful just to be aware that, that the political events, world historical events often do influence how churches are formed as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, back to your English reference, it's a curious era where you've got a strong, lingering Catholic influence. You've got the Anglican Church of England separatist influence, mm-hmm. and then you have the Scots. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of that, you know, Presbyterianism is growing out of this uh, this Scottish fiery independence yes. and inclination towards uh, making strong statements and, and covenants and uh, and fighting for them. You know, it's like, you know, it's not fun until someone loses an eye and then it's Scottish fun. (laughs) You know, I think that's, you know, it's inherent. I think we just like to fight. Yeah. And and it and it comes out of some of those Scottish roots. We're not having fun unless we're fighting, I guess. But I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I think this may be a good time to to shift into talking a little bit about the, the PCA's history in particular. Yeah. Uh, certainly we, we have these roots in Scottish <clears throat> Presbyterianism. We've we've been influenced by lots of different streams over the centuries. And in the US, the Presbyterian church has often been <laughs> sort of uh, concentrated, largely Anglo, mm-hmm. kind of ruling class, middle and upper class, economically, uh, highly educated. Yeah. Uh, that, that value of education is sort of a, a double-edged sword for us. But so coming out of, of the Southern Presbyterian Church in the 70s, and you, you may yeah. have your own personal experience kind of watching some of this go down, why did the PCA form out of what then was a much larger and more established denomination. Right. Well, I think the heart of it was theological. Yeah. Uh, it was um, a conviction that the mainline Presbyterian church in its, I don't know, orientation toward being more relevant or acceptable to culture. I'm not sure what the motivation was, but mm-hmm. it was a conviction it was becoming less and less biblical. Mm-hmm. All the way to core things like the the authority of Scripture, right? The nature of salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, I don't know if it got Trinitarian or or not, but mm-hmm. but it, it there, there was deep lingering conviction in you know, I guess much the same way that the early reformers must have felt about the Catholic Church that right. you know this is not of the Bible anymore, right. and so and there was a long era of attempting to reform the Presbyterian church from within Mm -hmm. political machinations, which seemed to prevent that to the point of, you know, church discipline of those who were conservative and talking about, you know, biblical standards as if they were still applicable. And, and so great tension, the creation of various different groups, Mm -hmm. formal and informal that um, were desiring to recapture biblical orthodox theology mm-hmm. combined with um, a proactive missiology right. desire to be on mission. Um, so Sean Lucas's book for the continuing church is a great, you know, here's a plug is a great treatment of that whole historical era and the formation. If mm-hmm. you want to really dig in more deeply to that, but at some point, and for us it was 1973, particularly in the South, mm-hmm. we churches just said that's enough. Right. The other component of it was was centralized versus decentralized authority. Right. 
and and in particular that related to property issues. Mm-hmm. Who owns a church? Right. And at the time, in the mainline denomination, it was the denomination that owned all church property, right. regardless of how that you know if if there was a fundraising effort to build or add to mm-hmm. a local church, that was still formally and legally on behalf of you know what the whole denomination owned. Mm-hmm. And so the reality is when when people and churches, pastors and churches were trying to leave, they were unable to do it either with their buildings or with their pensions. Right. And so there was tremendous sacrifice that had to go on. Mm. And and so it, it reached the point where many felt we we can no longer be connected mm-hmm. and connectional to this group. The the the, the divide is too great. And we are we are going to accept the cost and launch this new denomination. And as they launched it, uh, there's a sort of unofficial motto that a lot of people still make reference to that the, the desire positively was for the PCA to be faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith yeah. and obedient to the Great Commission. So right. that right. that commitment to scripture is at the core and reformed understanding of it. But also the Great Commission, evangelism, missions, right. always been deeply in the heart of a PCA. Right, absolutely. And so and that's kind of the point mm-hmm. of the title in Sean Lucas's book, mm-hmm. you know, For the Continuing Church. Mm-hmm. When, when we formed the PCA, I believe that we were trying to form a true replacement for the mainline Presbyterian church mm-hmm. that yet still you know, was aligned with those three ideas that you just expressed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were not trying to form a splinter group right. or a niche party or, mm-hmm. you know, a tightly theologically defined orthodox circle. Mm-hmm. We were still trying to be the mainline church on mission mm-hmm. and just biblical. But we yeah. do have churches all across the United States and some into Canada as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. Yes. And, and we, we're still relatively small, all things considered. And the statistics from this uh, most recent General Assembly were just under 1,600 churches yep. with about 385,000 members. Um, right. You know, the Southern Baptists are in the millions. The, the PC USA, the mainline church, is, is well over a million now, even though they've been declining for many years. Right. So we're, we're relatively small, but this may be a, a time to sort of, we've touched on some of the strengths and weaknesses of the PCA. Where do you want to start? Strengths, weaknesses? <laughs> I, yeah, wherever you'd like. We <laughs> might end up mixing them because a lot of times yeah. you know, strengths are, have their opposite side. And yeah, that's versa. true. Let's, yeah. let's mix them up then. Yeah, yeah I, I'll throw out one here. I think especially when we get to gathering in, uh, in these assemblies like the Presbytery regionally or the General Assembly nationally. And, and we've got representatives yeah. willing and teaching elders from different churches. And we're, we're trying to do this sort of work of the church by committee, like trusting that God speaks not just through individuals, but through, through gathered uh, assemblies. One of the strengths is the little guy can have a voice. Yeah. Is, yeah. you know, you might have a church of 50 people, but, but you're the same status as the, the pastor with 5,000 people. Right. And you can stand up and make an argument and everybody can be persuaded by you. And it's a, it's a very um, egalitarian, I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it's, it, it gives right. the right. little guy a voice. 
which is a which is a huge strength because uh, sometimes just like in the Old Testament prophets, like the little guy might be speaking through the Lord what right. what everybody really needs to hear, and then at the same time, I'd, I'd name that as a weakness, right? Is sometimes exactly. a little yeah. guy can can stand up, and because he has <laughs> nothing better to do with his time, just dominate the entire meeting with pedantry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or you know diversions that aren't really germane. Right. Yeah. So our polity, particularly when you get into the large group, so our general assemblies, and I expect this, this could also happen with, with some of our larger presbyteries. For an outside observer, I don't know, it, it, for any of you who want to watch this happen, our general assemblies are actually live streamed. Yeah. I'm not sure I would recommend them. No, I was <laughs> hoping you weren't going to mention that, Jim. Uh, do but not look that up. That's don't right. Google it. That's right. But uh, when you look at it, there is an it can be it looks kind of esoteric and very parliamentary because that becomes necessary. You know, at our general assemblies, we have like 12 to 1400 voting members. Mm -hmm. This was 1600. I have to go back and look. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 1600 this past year. So imagine, you know, the floor of Congress. But, you know, now multiply the numbers by like eight. Right. <laughs> or, or so. And, and so the, just the mechanics of how you have a, a, a discussion that's decent and in good order, like we Presbyterians love, becomes, <laughs> becomes more challenging. And because of those kinds of rules, whether they're built into our own rules or borrowed from Robert and his rules of assembly, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it means that we have to do things um, that are actually designed to protect the voice of that small right. contributor. As as valid as anyone else's, um, and to protect the voice of the minority, candidly, right. you know. So if you have a minority point of view, so we literally baked in into our processes and into our debates the the necessity of having balanced discussion. Mm. Uh, it was really interesting. I read one uh, a first time attender, a non PCA person from Oxford, England, mm. wrote up. A little blurb after, after just with his impressions after the assembly was over, and the essence of the blurb was very positive wow. on, on four or five different dimensions. And one of the dimensions he mentioned was these guys actually debate, yeah. and they do it fairly. You know, they're not yelling at one another. They're actually by design putting different points of view mm -hmm. on a particular issue um, with um, with temperance with reason. I hope usually deep biblical grounding as to, you know, why they, why I'm debating about, you know, whatever the issue is, it's on the floor. You know, and maybe this would be a good chance to give people some examples of the kinds of things that we, we would debate. So uh, I'll, I'll mention a few off the top of my okay. head. You're opening up a lot more podcasts here, yeah. potentially. <laughs> well, just, just so they know, like why, why you would debate. So, you know, sometimes it'll be uh, making changes to our book of church order that has to do with the way we proceed through judicial cases and a yeah. lot of just yeah. stuff that only lawyers would, would really be interested in, but, but does have an effect on how the church is governed. So some, some things are pretty micro interesting, but we'll, we'll have debates about, uh, about human sexuality, about right. marriage and divorce. Uh, we've just this past year, we had a lot of debates uh, about, um, how people uh, talk about the, the reality of same-sex attraction or yeah. Um, yeah. 
how how the church comes down on pastoring people in that situation and what what kind of language we can use we we've we uh, we institute study committees to, right. to get people right. together and try to produce reports that will benefit the rest of the church. What are some things you're thinking of? Yeah, I mean, some of the things, that, that, including ones that have created study committees mm-hmm. that I feel really good about. And so mm-hmm. this past year, um, just last June, uh, we created two new study committees. One was on sexuality. Mm-hmm. And for, for me, that that's extraordinarily important that uh, given... Uh, where we are in the cultural dialogue on the nature of sexuality, mm-hmm. on the definition of gender, mm-hmm. on how we practice it, um, on you know the t- how biblical understanding and orthodoxy connect with the ability to speak truth and love and the gospel mm-hmm. into this um, into the, the, the cultural expressions of sexuality mm-hmm. that we're facing now, the, the willingness to step back and, and think deeply right. in a committee <laughs> again, right. um, for me was, was an encouraging yeah. movement. Um, even perhaps even more encouraging, you know, we had a debate, uh, in the 2018 assembly that came on, the floor in strange ways, but it was all about domestic abuse. Right. It was just ir- irresolvable in that particular debate. Mm-hmm. And yet we took the time mm-hmm. to talk about issues about how we are good shepherds, mm-hmm. how we are faithful to uh, biblical standards mm-hmm. and, and so on. And so this past year we created a study committee mm-hmm. um, that is going to look into, you know, what kind of counsel uh, what kinds of standards, um, what approaches are appropriate, in particular counsel to our church sessions or mm-hmm. to our presbyteries in how we protect and how we are faithful to, especially those who who suffer right. from that kind of abuse within the church. And you don't have to Google very hard mm-hmm. to find just how, how um, damaging and mm-hmm. how important you know, being faithful and truthful mm-hmm. and loving in mm-hmm. that whole arena is. Um, and so that was that was one of yeah. the, I don't know that we debated it that much, yeah. but it was an important movement um, at this last assembly for me. And and in previous years, multiple occasions, we've, we've repented corporately for yeah. our involvement in racism, for our right. failures to be involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, there's... A number of ways that we've so we've made a lot of like public statements, um, right? Acknowledging what we understand to be true. Sometimes, that, yeah. in rare instances, commenting into something of a more political nature, like women in combat. I know came up years ago, that kind right. of thing. But right. but in most cases, Presbyterians stay out of direct involvement in particular political positions. That's that is true. Even while it's tempting for some to feel like you know, in in our assemblies, Presbytery or General Assembly, mm-hmm. you know, we we want to take positions mm-hmm. and and postures about particular things, um, mm-hmm. the, the nature of marriage or right. you know, women in military or whatever it is. Right. I, I I prefer us to stay on mission right. more, more than try to make right. proclamations. Well, and you know, yeah. broadly speaking, the kinds of things that we deal with, it, it strikes me that, uh, like, that back to the strengths and weaknesses paradigm, like, yeah. it is a, a strength of the sort of Presbyterian mindset and structure that 
we're always going back to the scriptures exactly. and saying, yeah. have we read this right? Are we, can somebody correct me if, if I'm not understanding this properly? And, and, and as well as facing new challenges that just come up in the course of the development of, of history, that we have to go back to the scriptures and say, hey, well, wait a minute, what do we do about this one? Exactly. And so there's a there's a vibrancy and a vitality at the same time that it can also be really exhausting. Right. Like you, you, sometimes you think, man, I wish we just sort of figured all this out and we could just do ministry. And yet this the way Presbyterianism operates is we're, we're constantly kind of going back and asking a lot of the same questions right. and new questions right. as well. Yeah. So um, I don't know if I... We want to pick at this thread. I'll just mention it in passing because one of those those controversial topics that tends to come up is what's an appropriate biblical role for women in our churches. And right. so we we have we, that that debate comes up in different forms in lots of different ways. Right. Um, and, and there there are times when I am deeply encouraged and times when I candidly am deeply discouraged by how right. we have that debate. Mm-hmm. And yet there was another example of a study committee. Right. That that we. Um, and even the formation of that st- study committee was sharply debated, mm-hmm. uh, and it it created a non-binding, you know, pious advice kind of a report. Mm-hmm. But to your point, like two thirds of that report, maybe three quarters of it, were biblical exegesis. Right. That's the, that's where all of these study committees really start and 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 dwell, because as a denomination, all together. In every facet, we are all deeply committed to the authority and the applicability right. of Scripture. Right. Which, for me, you know, when when I hear hand wringing mm-hmm. about slipping into you know liberalism, everything associated with it, I, I'm tempted to go into eye rolling mode. It's just <laughs> if, if that's really what our danger was, right. we would not be spending nearly as much time right. agreeing. On right. the authority and the power and the relevance of Scripture to right. speak into these things, right. you know. So mm-hmm. there, there are some quarters that are trying to describe PCA people on the scale of one as being, you know, so liberal that I, I doubt you're a Christian anymore. All the way to <laughs> ten is I don't know, you know, so tightly wound that it's you're a denomination of one. Yeah. And and uh, and, and the PCA, <laughs> they're describing ourselves as somewhere between the liberals who are nine point two and the and the conservatives who are nine point seven. Right. You know? Right. So that's the bandwidth that we're actually debating about. Right. Which which seems a little silly if that's in fact the case. <laughs> so, well, you know, a good yeah. example of that too related to the fact that the the PCA and Presbyterianism has you know coming out of Scotland and these majority white middle and upper yeah. class. Yeah cultures, highly educated, the the recognition that's been going on for a number of years in the PCA that, that we need to grow to look more like the kingdom of God and yes. our neighborhoods, ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, is, uh, can be viewed by some as like, oh, well, this is just where the culture's going and you're sort yeah. of trying to conform. And yet the reason it has legs in the PCA is because it's all over the Bible. Right. And, right. and that's exactly. where it's it's biblical arguments that drive us to say we need to repent of our racism. Right. We need to right. we need to invest in minority leadership. This is like you mentioned in Acts six, the, the early diaconate, the or the sort of proto diaconate. These were they were chosen specifically as uh, multi-ethnic leaders yeah. in the church to deal that's with right. the multi-ethnic problem. So yeah. while it's 
you look at the PCA and we're still overwhelmingly white. I mean, just my recent research, I think the number of ordained pastors in the PCA who are African-American is around 1% of the total yeah. pastors. So it's still, yeah. you know, so overwhelmingly white. We have a ton of Koreans, yes, uh, but the majority is, is very white. And yet there's a, a deep commitment in the leadership of the church to say this, this ought not to be. Right. Amen. Yeah. True. You know, even on the Korean side, one of the things that's encouraging to me, and it was, I, I have a, a young uh, fellow elder at InTown who's also Korean, mm -hmm. who came away even from this last assembly deeply encouraged mm -hmm. by, by the, the, the normalcy, increasing normalcy of a more diverse voice yes. in leadership of committees or going to microphones. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it, yeah, we've, we've actually finally elected a Korean American and an African American moderator right now. So we have that, but it, it's not just checking off boxes. I hope, and yeah. I don't think it is No. Um, so, you know, in our architecture historically with the Korean um, brothers and sisters or churches, they have, we have Korean presbyteries, mm -hmm. but I'm sensing more and more integration of those kinds of voices right. into the main dialogue versus kind of separation mm -hmm. um, into even language-based um, dialogue. So it's an, it's an encouraging trend. It really is. And and we may not see as much as we would like to see in our lifetimes, yeah. but the, the trajectory is, is overall encouraging. You know, uh, a few more anecdotal things, just strength. Let's let's focus on strength of the PCA here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, given the size of the denomination, you yes. know, fewer than 400,000 members nationwide. The way somebody has expressed it to me uh, years ago was that we, we punch above our weight. Yeah, That the, the influence of the PCA on the broader church is disproportionate to our actual size. That's right. And uh, I wonder if you could speak to that or any any particular uh, people, authors, leaders. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, I think that's right in terms of who's writing now. You know, and uh, one of the easiest examples would be a Tim Keller mm -hmm. who actually his published works are relatively recent. You know, he, he went a long time. Oh, yeah. 2007, I um, yeah. think, is when so, he really started going. Versus the growth of his uh, of his pastorate, particularly in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of, mm -hmm. of a voice. I think currently publishing right now, a guy named like Scott Sauls right. um, and some of his work in terms of irresistible faith mm -hmm. and, uh, and his commentaries on um, the Christian anti-culture mm -hmm. um, or, or counter-culture. Mm -hmm. It's reminiscent to me of, you know, when I was growing up and reading, you know, John Stott or right. um, some of those early authors. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, and I think that, that the PCA is producing those kinds of deep thinkers. Sean Lucas hasn't published as much yet other than the history stuff that he's done, mm -hmm. but he would be another example. Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton yeah. College, comes to mind. Well, when, when I was you know, younger in my eldership, you know, the um, Ligonier Ministries... Um, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul and his material was mm -hmm. was highly influential. So they're, they're illustrations of mm -hmm. both historical and continuing voices. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're they're credible, they're deeply biblical, and the best of them are um, attentive to um, how to articulate mm -hmm. faith in a way that's culturally comprehensible. 
Right. Right. Um, and for me, that's um, that, that that is an out out um, out fighting our weight class kind yeah. of a deal. The other the other component I, I'd, I'd mentioned two ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is one that you've already mentioned, which mm-hmm. is our campus ministry, RUF. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's a, a punching above our weight class kind of a mm-hmm. uh, of a ministry with its presence that's faithful. That's um, is growing that is uh, deeply pastoral and shepherding mm-hmm. of this next generation of, uh, of co- college students. Absolutely. Um, so that I, I, I wish that we'd had an RUF in my day, but uh, we didn't yeah. when I was in college. And then mission to the world in terms of its um, missional deployment mm-hmm. and its desire to deploy more and more of our uh, mm-hmm. of our people in our churches towards engagement in the Great Commission. Right. Um, and whether that's cross-culturally closer to home, international ministries, refugee ministries, international student ministries, right. or if it's if it's still an ascending mode to bring expertise to bear on indigenous church planting and mm. evangelism efforts. I, I just think that we've punched above our weight class in that area yeah. as well. And you know what's really remarkable is that having come out of the PCUS, which was so much more centralized, you know, losing your church buildings, we we created a denomination that's highly decentralized yeah. to a fault in many ways. Yeah. And and it's remarkable that with all these different committees and agencies, Covenant College and Seminary, Mission to the World, Mission to North America for Church Planning, yeah. RUF, that uh Committee on Discipleship Ministries, so many others, that, that we actually get a lot done for people that are, are trying really hard not to centralize anything. Yeah, that's and, true. And, and we don't even, you know, you can be a, a church in the denomination and never give a red cent to any of the ministries of the denomination. It's all voluntary. Yeah. And so yeah. I, it's it's not an ideal situation, but it does... It does require these ministries to to really be on their toes, yep. and and the, the gifts that they do receive to do ministry are from people who believe in what they're doing. Amen, amen. Some of that is also grassroots growth. I'm glad you mentioned mm-hmm. mission to the world or mission North American church planting. Mm-hmm. As I said, I, I've I've been involved in our kind of church planting committee mm-hmm. um, with our Metro Atlanta Presbytery, mm-hmm. all the way back to when we were a much bigger presbytery, mm-hmm. North Georgia presbytery, mm-hmm. and then split into three, but created this thing that was committed to ongoing church planning efforts in our, in our region. Mm-hmm. And that thing kind of merges to become a, 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 another thing called a church planting network, which is now called the Metro Atlanta collective. Right. And so it's an illustration that there are movements that are growing out of PCA seed planting, right? Some of it intentional, some of it accidental. That ha- have continued to grow and bear fruit. Yeah. So the the Metro Atlanta Collective now is a, a group that gets together um, for training and encouragement and coaching mm-hmm. every month, and it's become much bigger than just a PCA initiative, right? Uh, and that's because of its value. Mm-hmm. It is attracting a broader array of various church planters and those interested in engaging in creating healthier, a, a whole network of healthy um, churches mm-hmm. that are reaching out into their communities and, and building up and shepherding their people. 
Um, and not just because it's appealing beyond our denomination, but because our denomination wants to serve yes. outside of us. We want, exactly. we believe that God can plant churches that aren't PCA that really bless people. And we want to be a part of that as well. I, the, uh, w- what was at the time the church planting network was very helpful to me right. as I and the leaders here at Atlanta West side were, were planting 12 years ago. Right. And to do that, back to our theological distinctions, we have to be able to partner mm-hmm. with other churches that don't necessarily align with our confession. Right. And yet we would say what they're doing is is a worthy kingdom initiative. Mm-hmm. And even though they're, you know, going to make a lot more Baptists, well, so be it. Yeah. That's still, we're still bringing people into the arms of Jesus. So Amen. bring them in. Amen. Well, that, that's a good note. We've covered a ton of ground and it, it might be worth wrapping up with uh, any, any stray thoughts you have, whether um, stories, anecdotes, uh, anything about your own involvement in the PCA that you'd, you'd like us to understand. I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure I have any stray anecdotes. I'm just, <laughs> lingering out there. Well, I'll say this, and this might spur something in you, yeah, but yeah. in my personal involvement with the PCA, I, I tend to vacillate between frustration and appreciation. Yeah. And there, there's, there's something about the inefficiency of the Presbyterian system and that, that tendency to fight and the tendency to sort of not trust each other and Roberts yeah. rules each other to death yeah. Uh, yeah. that can can really suck the life out of you in certain contexts. And yet at the same time, even in those very contexts, uh, to, to be uh, among leaders in the church who, who love the scriptures and who love the yeah. reformed understanding of them, I, I look around constantly and I think there's an extraordinary number of people that I'm simply proud to be associated yes. with. Yes. And so it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but, uh, you know, and, and I have friends that, that they move their churches out of the denomination and transfer into another one that, that maybe seems less problematic in some way. But, uh, I haven't gotten close to doing that personally, uh, because there's still so much good that I do see. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. You know, it's a, it's a family dynamic. If a family presents as you know, problem free <laughs> and always decent and good order in every facet, then there's a pretty good chance there are deep pathologies going on underneath the surface. Right. You know, it, it is a suppression of actual vitality and differences and, you know, just what family life is like. And that's, that's the reality. My concerns are when listening stops right. and trust stops mm. And we start attacking character mm. rather than ideas. Mm. When and, and candidly, that's as that's as much of a lack of applying scripture as any example. Mm. And so the the obvious you know examples of that are you know what happens online, mm-hmm. and and the kind of trolling that happens is mm. deeply discouraging, and it needs to stop. Amen. Um, but it's not going to stop online. <laughs> it, it has to be confronted mm. personally by those that are around the trolls mm. who are creating environment toxic environments right um, and that that toxicity will will kill any organization mm. 
um, I think there's still lots of life and lots of hope. Mm. And uh, so that when I come away from General Assembly, I may be disappointed with where we landed on a given decision, mm-hmm. but I'm not disappointed in the time that I've spent yeah. with, uh, with those that are there with me. Yeah. Well said. And, and uh, to put on my pastor hat, it's a, it's a good pastoral word, whether you're ever involved in denominational machinations or not, that you know, eyeball to eyeball, uh, working that familial intimacy face to face is is inevitably going to be far more profitable than yeah. than texts and social media posts and the blogosphere and, and all those places where we really get sideways so quickly. Yeah. Amen. Well, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. I uh, I trust your character and I've enjoyed listening to you. <laughs> And I'm grateful that you came in it and is, talked. It is mutual, brother, as you know. Yeah. Hey, this is Corey Fleeman, your podcast master of ceremonies again. Coming up in our next episode, entrepreneur and Westside member Jody Stevenson sits down with Atlanta Westside's director of strategy, John Gunter, to talk about, you guessed it, singleness. It's really good stuff. If you liked what you heard in this episode, help us spread the word about the very good podcast Beyond Atlanta. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or share an episode with a friend. See you next time.